everyone, this is Ryan Derry, and this is So You Have a Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Chris Wade, the producer for Chapo Trap House, host of Hell of Presidents, Hell on Earth, and and Introducing. Chris, how are you today? I'm doing great. It's great to be here, Ryan. Yeah, great to have you. So we're going to get right into some questions about your background, starting with your time at college radio. So when you went to Northwestern University, How were you involved with WNUR 89.3 FM? Uh, WNUR was a big part of my college life. Um, By my maybe fourth or fifth week at the university, I was hosting a freeform show at 2 a.m. there. Uh, And throughout the time that I was there, I was the freeform producer, eventually a rock show a music director and producer. I was briefly the GM, the general manager over the one summer that I stayed in Chicago, but that was mostly because they just needed any, literally any radio person who was sticking around to do it. Um, I, I managed their phonathon, which is their annual you know, fundraising drive. I, I did tons and tons of stuff at, at WNUR. It uh, was, was a big part of my college life. Yeah, great. Radio has been a big part of my college life as well. You had a 2 a.m. show. How was yes. that? Uh, well, you know, I was a college freshman, so uh, just getting on the mic and playing whatever I wanted was, uh, you know, a dream at that time as somebody who uh, fancied myself an ascendant, you know, indie music snob, getting to broadcast to the entire Chicagoland area um, was, you know, it felt like a, a, a amazing privilege. Uh, and throughout my time there, you know, just because we keep the state, we kept the station running 24 hours a day, you know, we would often just need people to show up. So I, I, I DJed every hour of the day at a different point uh i i was on on mic and, and playing tunes at wnur um and even in my senior year i my last quarter as i was like winding down stuff i specifically requested to go back to pick up one of those slots just to uh, get the last little juice of midnight uh radio radio hosting out of my system when i could nice nice so since you have been involved with college radio for so long, what changes have you observed to radio since your time in college? Uh, well, that's a great question. And, you know, embarrassingly, my response would be I do not listen to much radio uh, now, but I would blame that mostly on the fact that I live in New York and don't own a car. And I think that for most people, probably car time is your prime radio time. Uh, but even now, you know, when my wife and I like go on road trips and stuff, some of our great pleasures is, hey, what's on the radio as opposed to, you know, DJing off Spotify or podcasts or whatever. Uh, but the other main thing is, you know, I um, went to college. I graduated in 2009 right as podcasts were kind of taking off as an idea. Uh, and so my entire college radio experience was kind of pre-podcasting like i don't think the words podcast were ever said in like an exec meeting uh, the entire time i was there i imagine that that is much different now um i would say one of my one of my the legacies of my time there that i'm most proud of is rearranging the schedule a little bit at wnur to put an hour block between the rock show at 9 p.m and our street beat our um kind of DJ focused beat uh, or block at 10 p.m. 
but the idea of people being able to try out just little one hour shows and seeing um, what they can come up with either talk shows or, you know, just get a little primetime stuff to experiment with. Um, and I sometimes look back at the schedule. I try not to, to obsess too over too much over what's going on in my college as a man in his thirties, but, you know, I sometimes look back at the, the schedule, uh, and, you know, see people now like trying out basically proto podcasts in those time slots. So I, I hope that that time is now being used for people to, to try out some of those ideas in a now fully podcastified radio space. Yeah, just to speak to uh, from my perch here at uh, WXVU, podcasting has become a very big part of mm -hmm. what we do. Uh, we actually record all of our shows and upload them in podcast form. Nice. So, very big. Yeah, so, and I imagine that that's a great way to expand outside, you know, your usual college radio listenership, which can be, you know, substantial, especially in a college town that has a well-respected radio station, it obviously is a, a usually a great oasis from the uh, stifling a corporate material on the FM dial, but using the, you know, online distribution of podcasting is a great way to expand what a college radio can do. Definitely. Definitely. So something a lot of younger people, people my age may not know is that a lot of up and coming artists used to use college radio to get an initial audience of young people, people that listen, want to listen to new music. So is that something that you observed during your time with WNUR? Yeah. Yes. WNUR has a very specific mission statement, um, which was to play not just indie material, uh, you know, your your classic, you know, merge and sub pop fair, uh, but to play the music that literally would not get played anywhere else. So it was a very... Um, you know, and, and you kind of got indoctrinated into this as you went up the ranks from freshman to senior, uh, you know, top down mandated like, you know, we we and I'm going to use references from my era like, yes, yes, you might like Arcade Fire, but we do not play Arcade Fire on WNUR. We play experimental music. We play rock and roll music. We have one of the largest antennas of any college radio stations in the country, and we felt a responsibility to use that to play music that would not get broadcast anywhere else in the country. So that's a lot of, in the rock show, it's a lot of noise rock, a lot of experimental rock. Uh, you know, you're, you're, again, I might be dating myself with some of these, you're, you're hair police, you're flying Lutenbachers, but even going back, you know, like classic early experimental stuff, the, the Dead Sea uh, got a lot of rotation, uh, Acid Mother's Temple. I'm just pulling off some of the top plays off the top of my head here, um, which when you first came into the station could feel a little stifling because again, I'm a, high schooler graduating in 2005 i'm like oh i i know the i know the indiest of the indie i i want to play the unicorns and you know somebody has to come in and be like no 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 uh here's you know here's some you know jonathan reich uh album or something that that is not going to get played anywhere else and, and kind of once you internalize a thing of like you may not love the music itself it might not be the thing that you're most passionate about but you can become passionate about the mission to use our broadcast capabilities to give voice to stuff that wouldn't does not get a voice a broadcast voice anywhere else in the country if not the world and you know we wnur had built up over time and i hope still has a, a reputation for giving that kind of outlet to on un, <laughs> unlistenable 
and I mean that in the positive way, uh, not a description of the music itself, but unlistenable in the in the uh, commercial sense music. Yeah, definitely one of the coolest aspects of college radio. Mm-hmm. So did your college radio experience influence your later career choices? Um, you know, it's funny because I had a film degree from um, Northwestern, which uh, as a holdover from when the degree was created is called RTDF, which stands for Radio, Television and Film. Uh, and the joke among most of the majors is that the R was still appended to it because everybody was like, oh, I'm going to do TV or film stuff. Who cares about radio? And, you know, I was one of the few people who was like, oh, I'm going to hang out in the radio station. But even to me at that time, I was like, this is a fun thing that I just want to do because I have access to this broadcast antenna in Chicago. Um, but the thing was that it really did get me thinking about audio broadcasting audio content uh in a way that hilariously came back to me in ways that i didn't expect as you know i got into web video and i was working for online media companies like places like slate and mike.com mic.com if anybody remembers that during the height of the pivot to video time trying to make web video and realizing nobody actually wanted to watch web video what people but what people really liked was podcast and what i love was podcast and so reoriented back towards that. But I I would say that the main thing that I got out of it was actually a lot of the management skills that I got being on the exec board there. And, you know, WNUR, our college radio, I think most college radios function as like a tiny nonprofit that is student run within a university and getting some of those skills of like, okay, how do I manage a entity that needs to be constantly broadcasting and has a variety of different people working for it who have different interests, but are all working towards the same goal. Like a lot of that stuff, I think, are really the most invaluable uh, experiences that I got from college radio, other than a kind of passion about radio in general, which, you know, I thought I was just going to put in the memory bank, but then ended up being my life. Yeah. So this seems like a good point to pivot to some of your podcasting projects. So, Let's start with Chapo Trap House. Chapo yes. Trap House is a political comedy podcast, very popular. So how did you get involved with Chapo? Um, as I was just saying, you know, I was working in web video and the but the thing that I it actually enjoyed the most was podcasts. And I actually, you know, Chapo started from three guys who knew each other over Twitter, just kind of deciding, hey, wonder if we hopped on the mic with each other. And I fo- happened to follow all those guys. I thought they were funny and smart. And the first day they put out a show, um, I listened to it and I was like, this is pretty good. And by the third episode, I was like, these guys have it, uh, but they need some technical help because they were just recording over like a Google Hangout and just publishing the raw feed from that. Uh, so I got in touch. It was like, I love what you're doing. I have some experience editing audio and stuff like that. And they said, thank you very much. But we just found a producer. I was like, cool. Uh, about a year later, they mentioned offhandedly maybe spinning off one of their movie series into a separate podcast. I got in touch again. was like, if you need another producer for that, that actually started a conversation with them and uh, didn't really go anywhere. And then about six months after that, uh, they were doing a live show about two blocks away from where I live. I went and ch- checked out the live show, uh, ran into Matt, who you've had on this program at the bar after the show and said, hey, great show. 
Uh, I'm that guy who occasionally DMs about producing work. And he said, that's very interesting because our old producer left like yesterday. So I went in that weekend and produced an episode and I have produced 550 episodes <laughs> since then. Very cool. So they didn't make you submit a job application or any of that. I did have to go in for an interview, uh, which was very funny. But, you know, basically I told, met Matt or, you know, I, I talked to Matt on, th on a Thursday and produced my first episode on a Sunday and just we were off to the races. Very cool. So can you give us a little look under the hood of Chapo Trap House? What is your editing processing or what is your editing process like? What kind of software do you use? Feel free to get a little bit nerdy here for the audio yes. file listeners. Uh, so I, in the past, pre-pandemic, you know, I kept the uh, production of Chapo fairly streamlined. We never really had a studio. We would just go to people's houses. Um, you know, I think that there is a lot to be said about, you know, getting high quality mics and everything. But for what we do in a podcast and for what Chapo is aesthetically, you know, I always believe that the main thing that was more important than super high audio quality was making sure the hosts were comfortable and having a good time and things didn't feel too sterile or, you know, alienating from them. So I was always happy to have a mobile recording station and do it at people's houses. Uh, my workhorse for live recordings has been and always will be the Zoom H6 four-track recorder, uh, which I have recorded almost all of my uh, output on. Uh, this thing is a beast. Uh, it's perfect for podcasting. It's what I recommend for basically anybody who wants to get into to podcasting. Uh, my go-to mics when we travel and everything are the Shure SM58s. I have about a dozen of these guys. They are also workhorses. I think for 95% of podcasting, unless you're going to broadcast quality on NPR, these things are totally fine. Um, they're also total beasts. You can throw them down a flight of stairs and they'll basically be fine. Uh, so that was that's my in-person rig for recording. Um, and, you know, when we tour and stuff, when I travel and we get the gang in person, that's still what I basically use for recording. Post-pandemic, um, it's, you know, we, we now record mostly remotely. Half the crew has moved to L.A. We use the program Riverside FM, which uh, I think has been the most useful of the uh, virtual recording programs. You basically, every person can, can, log, can connect via like a USB audio interface and it records right into the program. And then I am, it immediately update uploads all the files to the host server, my server, and I can download them instantly and start working. Um, the gang uses uh, Focusrite 2i2 audio inputs into their computer. And then mostly still those uh, SM58s. I believe Felix has an SM7B uh, as his mic. Um, and then I edit on Adobe Audition, which is a holdover from my uh, video editing days because I was so well-versed in the Adobe suite. Um, generally just sync up the tracks. I've got a little effects rack for that I use for uh, each of the tracks, obviously because they're all recording on their own and most of them uh, are fairly incompetent with audio. The audio that I get is a, a little bit of varying quality and I do my best to make, merge it all and make it sound like they're coming from the right place. The in distance recording isn't, you know, I, as a producer, I don't love it, but what are you going to do now that we're on different coasts? 
Um, I edit the show a lot, um, like tons and tons of little spot edits, taking out pauses, like basically shortening it, shortening every pause, um, you know, cutting out as many ums and uhs as I, you know, filler words as I can, um, and goofs and restatements, unless I think it's funny and then I'll leave them in, uh, try to do a little bit of sound design add a little, a few little like sonic bridges, music bridges between little segments, uh, just cause I think it, is gives the brain a little chance to pause and reset between segments instead of just like a barrage of talking. Um, yeah. And that's basically, uh, my, my workflow. Um, I have a, a little secret secret weapon applet I use for spot mastering of just our regular pod, uh, episodes, but I am not going to reveal my final secret, uh, here. Um, yeah, and we upload this. We've always used SoundCloud, which is like one of the as our chief distribution source for the public RSS feed. Uh, I have never had really had a problem with it, other than the analytics are a little janky. But that that's basically my entire workflow. Yeah, thank you. That's a very very thorough uh, explanation of everything. So, small follow up. So you pick the the song that plays at the end of every Chapo episode. I do, I do. I I am the, I am the DJ. Very nice, very nice. Always always yeah. a fun. Uh, little uh, coda to the episode though i might give you a little a little preview here that i think now that we're in our eighth season of doing the show um i might start soliciting pitches and also because this is going well has been going well as a good system on hell on earth uh, i might start soliciting uh for listener music for music from from fans to uh fill out the show uh, just because you know i feel like I've basically used at this point every good song I know. So I kind of want to see if we can start using the the show to uh, platform and spotlight some um, music from, from the listeners. So we'll see. We'll see that might, I might be rolling that out in the next few weeks. Yeah. So now turning to hell of presidents, which looks through American history by looking at the presidents made by you and Matt Chrisman. So Matt has said that he was very impressed with you and how you prepared for this project. So how did you prepare for this project? Um, well, I mean, I kind of figured out how to do it as we were doing it. My initial idea for this, you know, was was as simple as like zero preparation because the idea of the project just came from me hanging out with Matt and knowing that anytime any u.s president came out came up matt could just go off for about 15 to 20 minutes so my initial idea was just literally starting each episode with just going george washington go and him just start talking and me just asking follow-up questions as a you know kind of barely amateur history enthusiast uh but then when we decided that it should be like a constrained amount of episodes and we needed to lump presidents together by groupings uh, you know, I, I realized that I need to add more structure to it. So I put together a little reading list. I drew heavily from the, um, Oxford American history, uh, series of books for my research. Um, Matt and I started that series by doing basically my first idea. And I would just, you know, I sat down with a, a Google docs open and, and basically said, all right, George Washington go. And he would just riff on what he wanted to talk about. And I would, typed down as many notes as I could. Then I went back and organized that into an outline. And then from there, kind of divvied the outline into kind of story and analysis. 
and went through the research and tried to pull out the straight chronology of what Matt wanted to talk about so I could get, you know, the just the facts description down of what happened at what time and then kick it over to Matt and he would give the analysis of that. And that worked into a nice little workflow where I was basically writing everything I wanted to say because I'm not as great of an extemporaneous speaker as Matt was. And then Matt would be working off an outline to fill in his blanks. Uh, and that worked pretty well. The, the series was successful beyond what we imagined it could be, but it, it gave us confidence to do future series. So moving a little bit from the structure to some of the content of Hell of Presidents, are there any things that you learned while making this that surprised you? Uh, just fact-based. Um, you know, and I think this is kind of how Matt and I wanted to, a re another way that we originally thought about doing the series was kind of organizing it around the lesser presidents and being like, you know, everybody here is Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, but, you know, maybe our spotlight president for each episode is one of the lessers, your Ben Buren's, of course, for Matt being one of his chief fascinations. So like structuring each episode around the, um, the, the loser presidents and it kind of the, the stuff that popped out to me the most was the importance and fascinating details of those periods that are kind of brushed over. Uh, like one of the things that really jumped out at me from doing this series is how important the 1840s are as a kind of sage stage setting for the conflict that's going to become the civil war, the Mexican American war, the, te the annexation of Texas, things that are, covered in a day in history uh, class, but have these are these kind of enormous pivotal moments in the development of American history that that have fascinating conflicts in them that, that set up future things. The 1920s, uh, you know, is kind of just you'd get return to normalcy, skip a few and then, uh, you know, Great Depression. But, you know, there's a lot going on there to set up the things that will become important when uh, FDR takes over the Democratic Party. Uh, and, and elements like that. So it, it, it was really the focusing on the lesser periods or the glossed over periods, the 1970s, post-Nixon, pre-Reagan, uh, those eras that I found the most fascinating and the most interesting to dive into and flesh out as much as, you know, the Civil War period or, you know, the 60s and the civil rights or 1940s and, and uh, the war uh, so if you could elaborate on that point a little bit, which presidents specifically do you think deserve more recognition and which ones do you think are too gassed up in the popular consciousness? Uh, you know, I think one of the things that we found is, you know, you have these handful of presidents that, you know, ascend to legendary status. Uh, let's go with Lincoln and FDR. Let's go Lincoln, FDR, JFK, you know, two of three of the most well-known uh, presidents um, and not the least because they die suddenly and tragically while in office. Um, and certainly they are all very meaningful presidents in their own right. But one of the things I think that I'm, I'm happy and proud that we key in on is how pivotal their replacements are in the moment. Um, you know, almost as important as the, the, pivotal historical mover of Lincoln is how uh, much of a crumb bum and a shithead Andrew Johnson is, mm -hmm. but he takes over at 
just a pivot as pivotal moment, the moment of the beginning of reconstruction. And surely, you know, Johnson, if he is known as all, all is barely known by, by most of the public, but he is in fact, one of the most important presidents in our history for how much of a disaster his administration is. Same with Harry S. Truman taking over uh, after FDR uh, at a pivotal moment when, you know, we're emerging from World War II with this, you know, New Deal society uh, that needs to be grafted onto a post-war moment. And there are a lot of fatal compromises that Truman enacts uh, by just being a kind of replacement level uh, political machine guy who got grafted onto the FDR ticket for political reasons. And also, you know, I think he is recognized more, um, but Lyndon Johnson taking over after uh, FD, or, uh, JFK, you know, in these moments of, and and I think that's one of the things that our, our show tries to get at is that, you know, presidents are constrained by their moments in history and their political forces, but there are these moments of acute contingency in which uh, history moves suddenly drastically in a random direction and often as often as a great man you know moving history uh, history is moved by a failure of a man uh failing his moment and and i think that those are those three examples again all part of a sudden death of their uh their president are, are really key moments in American history that are a little under discussed that I, I hope I like to think that we did justice to in our series by kind of trying to give equal weight to each president as a person and as an office holder. Yeah, excellent answer. And one of the biggest themes and uh, points that you and Matt emphasized in Hell of Presidents was, like you said, the material constraints on the presidents that they operated within. And that is a theme that has carried on into your new series, Hell on Earth, which is currently being released now. I think the fourth episode was released today. Yes. I've been listening to it. It's very, very good. Um, so Thank you. how are you and Matt approaching this project similarly and differently than last time? Yeah, so the the basic setup is pretty much the same as... Um, Although I think we came into it with a little bit more equal footing on it because we were both kind of reacquainting ourselves with the 17th century at the same time. But basically the setup was the same where I would basically pitch him events and moments and let Matt riff and then turn that riff into an outline. And then, you know, also because we didn't have the structuring factor of, oh, we have these set administrations that we can kind of clump into moments and movements. Uh, you know, I, so I, I think I did a little more legwork setting up the overall structure of the series and what each episode would contain. Uh, but then from there, from figuring out the episode structure would kind of just let Matt riff um, on an outline. But the big difference is that with this series, from that outline, we both completely wrote out our parts. Um, I wrote out mine much the same, mostly trying to focus on getting from point A to point B in straight chronology uh, or just, you know, giving biographies of people, you know, letting people know who's moving where and when, when we get to the actual war. And Matt's handling more of the analytical work of the series. Um, but then the other thing that we kind of had to figure out as we went along and actually kind of re-record and insert in some of the earlier episodes as we figured it out is that the, um, you know, the writing everything makes things a lot a little stiffer 
and gives a less of a chance for the kind of sense of humor and playfulness that we tried to bring to these things. So we figured out that we had to actually write in what we called like bant breaks, like banter breaks of being like, so we have this like chunk of written script that would be like, I have a chunk of script. He has a chunk of script. I have a chunk of script. He has a chunk of script. And then try to break it up by putting like break. Let's just riff for a bit on this funny thing or this weird guy or this moment or this fascinating eddy of the history to keep things more conversational and try to bridge that gap between completely scripted and some extemporaneous uh, discussion of what's going on to try to match that, you know, tone that I think is kind of unique to our podcast of, of narrative, but also discussion based. So that, that's the major difference in prep between the two episodes or the two series. So there is a tension between telling a compelling narrative and packing in the immense amount of information that, you know, you could talk about from this period. So how do you guys adjudicate what gets left out and how you build a narrative? Uh, That is a great question. And there's certainly especially considering how many political entities and people are involved in this conflict, uh, this particular moment of 17th century European history where our few big states as we know them have not quite developed. There's so much stuff that you could get into. Um, you, you, We kind of had to go, or at least for me, do like a two steps forward, one step back thing where I would take a, like do a bunch of reading, take a bunch of notes, overwrite a bit and then have to go back and be like what things do I bring up that don't really pay off and can I cut those and just try to streamline 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 cut to the bone what is the going to be the simplest thing to follow and also you know we arrived on this kind of late in the process but one of the things that the series is going to eventually have and you know the only reason that we're not putting these out in tandem with the episodes is because we had to work so hard to get the narrative arc of the series, the 10 narrative episodes done that we didn't really have time to do them to now. But at the end of the series, we're going to do, I think, five or six. What I'm thinking of is appendix episodes that are going to be uh, interviews with uh, experts or fellow podcasters, history podcasters on specific elements of the series that we didn't really have time to get into that hopefully will elucidate a bigger thematic element of the show. So we have an interview set up with a um, early modernity specialist uh, who's going to just talk about daily life of the various people in the story, you know, starting from peasantry to the, uh, you know, town merchants and up into court life. Uh, that'll be one of the first appendixes, which, you know, eventually, you know, to future people listening to this, I would maybe recommend being like, listen to the first episode, then listen to the first appendix. And then we'll have one on economic developments during this time, kind of the overall change in European, the European economy from the feudal to the modern era over these two centuries. That'll be another appendix. And maybe you listen to that after the third episode or something. So hopefully by the time the entire series is out, we'll have this kind of Cut to the bone, straightforward. Here's the simplest narrative that we could conceive of of the story we're telling. And then these five to six extra episodes that were, will give you kind of more full coloring of the entire story 
uh, that aren't narrative, but are more discussion based, you know, more just or thematic based. And our hope is that then as a whole, the series will give the full picture of the story that we're trying to tell. Yeah, thank you for your answer. So you mentioned how there's a lot of like interesting episodes or eddies that you don't really get into in the main series. Are there any that stick out in your mind that you might want to mention now for people that on their own might want to dive into them? Um, I mean, I, I, I think I'm probably going to blank on this one because I, you know, again, I tried to get like as much as I could into the, the all the things that I found interesting, uh, into this. Um, there's honestly probably the more interesting stuff is going to be the things that are taking place on the colonial periphery mm. of the story, uh, because we're very focused on what is going on at the power center in Europe. But at the same time, uh, that we're doing this, you know, the, the colonial machine of Europe is really getting revved into gear. So we touch on things like, uh, you know, the Spanish setting up, uh, the Potosi silver mine in Bolivia, um, and we mention almost offhandedly, which, you know, I, I hope is not taken as offensively, just how brutal of a system of, you know, enslaved labor is going on to rip this silver out of the ground to feed the Spanish continental war machine. And there's certainly so much more we could get into there, like just the entire Spanish conquest of Central and South America, uh, the Dutch setting up a, a trade network that you know, spans from the Caribbean to Japan. There's so many interesting stories going on there. This is when England gets its first foothold into India. Uh, this is the point in which the intercontinental, the transatlantic slave trade is getting set up at the time. There are so much to go into on that side of knitting together this international, like wildly, brutally exploitative trade network. Uh, that we can only allude to during the main series because we're focusing on this continental war that, you know, I think would be another fascinating corollary where you could almost do an entire, you could do an entire second series that is the companion to this about that thing. I mean, somebody pointed out on Twitter, you know, our the episode we put out today ends up, ends with the Battle of White Mountain, which concludes the first stage of the Thirty Years' War. Uh, and somebody pointed out that just timing wise, less than two weeks later is when the Mayflower drops anchor in Plymouth Bay in uh, Massachusetts. So it's like there, there's so many things. Go and we'll allude to the Puritans and New England col colonization when we get to England at the end of the series. But, you know, the the simultaneousness of, of all these things happening, like a glow, a truly global world coming into being at this moment, I think is, is the stuff that we had to leave most on the cutting room floor. Hmm. So now moving on to some of your favorite characters from the broader 17th century, who, who are you a fan of? Who do you dislike? Who, who are the, the big flashy ones that catch your eye? Um, there are a lot of the, the characters that I kind of end up, identifying with the most and i feel like I'll, I'll probably get um you know i i would i, I would maybe get razzed for this are, are the characters who end up coming across to me as um like competent dedicated uh workers who end up getting uh pushed into more and more extreme positions just by virtue of trying to keep everything together 
so among these, I would think of maybe uh, your your Cromwells, uh, even though I know many people think of him as a monster for various reasons. But at the same time, he's a very fascinating character to me because he seems to me, or at least my read of his character at every time is just trying to put together a functional government in England that responds to his ideas of, you know, English liberty. And at every moment by the um, intransigence, sometimes stupidity, sometimes ideological commitments of everyone around him gets pushed into more extreme and extreme positions until he is the de facto monarch of England uh, through, even though he never really seems to want or aim for that position. Uh, there's also, of course, Wallenstein, who is a mercenary general in uh, Germany around these times, who is a real, um, as as Matt refers to him, as a kind of Nixonian figure throughout all of this, a, a guy who understood the moment almost as well as, or if not better than anyone, and uses all the newly emerging mechanisms of continental power, of, of the empowering of mercenary captains of his time to um, absorb a huge amount of wealth and power for himself, but at every time is consumed by this feeling of inadequacy and and being looked down on by the actual nobles surrounding him. Uh, there are also some pathetic figures that I find fairly funny. Uh, this one guy that we will get a lot of joking mileage out in the series, uh, John George of Saxony, who is called Beer George. Yes, Beer uh, George. Who is, yes, who is kind of throughout the entire 30 years war period, uh, not playing both sides against each other, but basically drifting from side to side as one seems like it is going to win, mostly because he is of the opinion of, come on, guys, let's just stop. This is wildly destructive. This is, uh, you know, you're ruining everything. Can we just calm down and stop killing each other? But by constantly switching sides, he is in fact only prolonging the conflict in his own way. Um, and so he is a comical figure in our story, but you, you kind of can't help but identify for him. And, and we'll be talking a lot more about him as the uh, as the show goes on. Also, just the Dutch in general uh, throughout this period, I, I find you know very fascinating in their ability to punch way above their weight class in these continental powers by being the best at business during this time. Yeah, great. Great answer. Uh, so now moving on from Hell on Earth to your podcast and introducing, which you make with Molly O'Brien. Yes, my wife, Molly. Yes. So what inspired you and Molly to start this podcast? And if could you give a brief, brief uh, description of what the content is? Yes. And introducing, we started in 2017. Um, the show is basically in its earliest uh, format was basically Molly would read an artist, a musician's memoir, uh, or you know, a biography about a musician, and then we would talk about it and use the memoir and what they think of you know, we we tried to stick to memoirs because it got you know the artist's own version, whitewashed or not, of their story, uh, and then use it to talk about their lives, their entire career, listen to their music, talk about you know how they changed over their time, their influences, how they influence people, uh, all the uh, joke, you know, kind of funny, ridiculous things that happens to popular musicians. We use it a lot to talk about the music industry and, and uh, kind of musicians and labor. Um, we started for two reasons. Uh, a, because we just 
found ourselves over and over having these, you know, long, fun, funny conversations about music, musicians specifically in their careers and how they fit into the industry and how they worked. And then second, in a more craven way, because I wanted to transition into podcasting. And I thought a good way to do that would be to have a podcast and show that I am capable of recording, editing, putting out a podcast regularly, even if we never really got much listenership to it. You know, it was kind of my stark careerist move to be like, if I want to do this, I should be doing this. Uh, and Molly was very game and we've been doing it now for coming up on six years. Uh, we tried to stick to a fairly regular release schedule of like one every other week for our first like two or three years of doing it. Now it's basically whenever we want to put one out, we put one out, um, which is totally fine. We have a huge back catalog of, and they're basically all evergreen at this point. So, you know, we will keep doing it forever. How frequently they come out, I don't, I can't guarantee because we basically do it to have fun and whenever we feel like it. That's great. And definitely a very cool idea for a podcast. So what are some of the most interesting memoirs that you've covered? You sent me this in a question. I should have thought about it uh, more. I honestly should like look through uh, my list of, of guys. Um, you know, the, the guy, I think the ones that I find the most interesting are, are ones that uh, make me realize that I'm a hyper fan of people that I wouldn't really think of before. Like one that sticks out to me is uh, Niall Rogers of Chic, uh, his memoir uh, that just kind of made me realize he's one of the most influential guitarists and producers of all time. And also just a genuinely, genuinely cool dude. Uh, and, you know, made me come out of that being like, Oh, I am a super fan of Niall Rogers. Um, you know, some of the other ones, uh, you know, I always like talking about the Red Hot Chili Peppers guys. Uh, I think that they're all maniacs in really interesting ways. Um, and then I kind of like doing kind of our one-off concept ads, uh, or one-off concept apps, like a, a really fun one we did was with Matt, uh, talking about just 9-11 and music. Um like that kind of moment and how it inflected music and like what the musical, what the scene was at that time, who was at the top of the charts, like what was going on and how it changed afterwards. And just, and I think this is going to come into one of your further questions. So maybe uh, go ahead and ask your, your next one. Cause I can talk more about nine 11 and music. Yeah. I mean, my next question was, are there any common themes that you found covering these memoirs? Well, one of them is 9-11 and music. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if you want to talk more of that, by all means. Very... No, I mean, so one of the things that got us thinking to do that episode is that like any artist that we cover that whose career starts, if they like pop before roughly the turn of the century, roughly the turn of the millennium, but more specifically before 9-11 and then continue their career after it, it always comes off as a major inflection point in their career and the way it because it was you know among other things to use a fairly glib turn it was a vibe shift <laughs> and a lot of the artists who had been very comfortable in the 80s or 90s the way that they trip managed that transition into the 2000s is 
always very fascinating to us uh, because not many really pull it off. And it is like very noticeably the marked like endpoint of kind of superstardom of a lot of more legacy acts. And that's one of the things that got us really interested in doing like 9-11 in music as an episode. Uh, obviously, substance abuse comes up a lot in these in these um, episodes. Uh, sometimes, you know, in a way that's a little more entertaining to discuss, sometimes in a little way that's a lot more uh, tragic to discuss. But, you know, the way that that is almost inextricably linked with how, what we consider the career of popular musicians has always been very interesting and a, a recurring theme of the show. And yeah, and as I mentioned when I was describing the show, just the nature of the music industry and the equally inextricably linked nature of musician as a kind of job of something you can do, a skill set and celebrity being a pop culture fixture outside of your actual music uh, is something that I and Molly find continually very interesting because those aren't necessarily two complementary jobs, you know, and the way that musician is wrapped up in the concept of celebrity um, in the way that culture industry are highly capital capitalist system of creating popular music, popular music as an industry, basically uh, being a musician as an industrial art form. Um, you know, we, that's a thing that always comes through with these. Oh, I, speaking of that, another episode, a uh, series of episodes that I um, remember being, I think surprisingly for me, really surprisingly good are, um, are episodes about the song factory, the, the hit factory. I always forget. It's like the hit factory inside the music machine or something, but it's basically a two part series we did on the Swedish invasion of um, Swedish producers coming in in the nineties and kind of taking over pop music and, and the boy, like the boy bands and sync and Backstreet Boys and creating this like new factory of making hit songs and that integration of these, the specific generation of Swedish producers into the American music industry and shaping it forever after uh, is uh, a really interesting one for me. And then the kind of the corollary to that is our series where we did every band from our band could be your life as a series where it's these scrappy teens in the eighties creating a shadow DIY music industry among college radio stations and indie record labels and uh, DIY zines and stuff like that. Like I think those two series are very complimentary on us and then does what the shows what the show is at its best. Very cool. And I do want to get into some of those more large scale changes in the music industry. But before that, I do have a quick follow up question about the uh, vibe shift that happened. Yes. The 90s going into the the aughts right around 9-11. So could you talk a little bit about some of those stars that you said sort of declined after that point and why you think that happened? Um, I think it's a lot. You know, we think about we cover um you know, the guys from like, you know, Aerosmith or Skid Row, like some of those rock guys who were big in the eighties and even still into the nineties when, you know, like Aerosmith had hits 
way up into the 90s and early 2000s but you know people say that like you know their rock is you know there's been a canard for a few years that like rock is dead i disagree with that i think it's just changed and maybe spread out a bit maybe not as few as big superstars but there was definitely it you know it had to do with kind of the ascendancy of pop and hip-hop and honestly like club bass music like dance music as the overall tone it had to do with those swedish producers who were taking you know those kind of euro club style production techniques into pop music at the time and that becoming kind of like the dominant force um and that crowding out uh previous uh genres of you know not just rock music but kind of older school r&b uh basically stuff music and this sounds very uh dire but you know music that was made by um bands with instruments playing live instruments uh which i don't mean as like a qualitative judgment like one is better but it is definitely a shift into like what was dominating and it changed a lot of who could be on charts you get a shift more into artists that are not bands but are single artists and you even see over this time like we were just talking in a regular episode or a recent episode where we interviewed the original drummer of maroon five kind of talking about like you know those guys first started in the late 90s you know first formed as a band like they were they were touring with like ska bands and the like the warp tour circuit in the late 90s and now over the last 20 years you know they're still a band but they're effectively like adam levine anchoring a pop act Mm. and i think that's very indicative of how things have changed if you're moving away from bands that are assemblages of people playing instruments together to a single artist that is on top of a music writing and producing machine um that might be changing though i you know nothing nothing's forever and you know certainly i see the reemergence of you know just last week uh I'm always going to uh, mispronounce their name, but the, the, that Italian kind of glam rock act, Maniskin, Ma- Maniskin, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know they're, what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, they're awesome. And they are a band of, you know, cute, scruffy Italian guys playing rock instruments. And they are massive in Italy. And they just played Fallon last week and they're on the rise here. Like that is a, you know, a new type of thing of the last like five years, a new genuine rock band uh making in inroads here so you know these things go in cycles uh and i think that that 9-11 shift that i've been you know going back to is just one of the most stark cycles where things like flip almost on on a dime of being like we are done with this old thing you know that kind of grunge into new metal thing had reached a maximum and we are shutting that off and turning on the pop faucet uh and then that runs its course and then it changes again you know Mm -hmm. so a different way to look at these large-scale changes in the music industry is through the lens of technology yes how do you think that the rise of internet-based streaming platforms has affected the music industry i mean first and foremost it is about the bottom line right It, it really makes it more difficult to be you know in the bottom 95 percent 99 percent of musicians and then again really really benefits these 
superstar celebrity musicians, right? Where you have, where you're not just a popular musician, you are a famous person. Mm. And that is, you know, collecting a huge amount of listenership around it. And it's, you know, changing all the obvious ways where it's changing things to be more single based or these spurts of, you know, mixtapes, the like, just getting out as much content as possible, you know, the the 20 song mixtape as opposed to the tight 10 song album uh, or whatever. But, you know, at the same time, there's things persist um, behind the scenes. You know, I, I think I would, I would have to talk to more indie musicians about this, but I, I, I find the things of the increasing popularity of, of places like um, um, what am I thinking of Bandcamp. Uh, as encouraging and a way that you know that to get the access of streaming but reorient around the direct payment of a band um but i don't know you see the kind of um the kind of faltering of streaming in the moment right now like i don't know if you track this kind of thing but i've just been seeing like tons of reports of like the big entertainment companies basically admitting like streaming video services like Netflix and Disney plus and HBO max are like not a viable business model for those places, which signals to me that, you know, that might crack up. So maybe that'll change how the music industry is, is working. But at the same time, it gives kind of unprecedented access to randos to new emerging musicians to um, get their names out. And so you see, I think that, seems especially uh true in the hip-hop world but you know who who knows what uh bands would be able to emerge if not who knows if like a band like wet leg could go from like two chicks in the isle of white to international phenomenon in 15 months with if it weren't for the ease and availability of their music through i mean the first time that i heard them was on spotify or somebody sending me a spotify link so you know, I'm not saying that that oh, you got to take the good and the bad. Obviously, Spotify is a very raw deal for most of the musicians on it. But I can't imagine that that is going to be the only mode of musical listenership forever. Mm. And Spotify, founded by a Swede, I believe. Yes, more of that s- disruptive Swedish music technology. Yeah. Honestly, no offense to Swedes, but I think we well, and I appreciate a lot of that pop music production, but I think we got to take the Swedes out of music for just like a generation, like keep the Swede Swedes in Sweden. They can submit to the, uh, the Eurozone pop. Uh, what is that contest? The, you know, whatever the Euro yeah, competition is. Song contest. Yeah. 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 Eurovision. They can submit one song to Eurovision every year, but, but just stay out of the international music scene for, you know, 15 years and let's see what develops. Yeah. So on that point you made about increased access do you think that the ability for me to listen to music made by someone anywhere in the world has sort of flattened regional distinctions in music and regional regionally popular artists? Yes, I imagine. I mean, I can't, I'm not, that's the thing is that I'm in my thirties in New York right now. I go out to a lot of shows and I definitely see a lot of local New York bands but I am not as plugged in to what a group of recent high school grads in Tallahassee might be doing right now. And I have to imagine that even though 
people can listen to everything everywhere and there is like kind of more monocultural um access to music i have to imagine that there are still those pockets of people in places who find each other and are all egging each other on into the weird eddies of their own tastes that generate those types of things and also there are those communities on online as well where people find themselves in small niche communities online that might be music based that are pushing each other into the same direction as what might have existed as the same 15 kids who went to every DIY show at some place, you know, in Omaha in the early 90s all egging each other on into one direction of of, you know, whatever emo music or whatever that they were writing. So Yes, and I certainly think that maybe it's more tantalizing to see the rapid rise of, of certain types of music and imagine like, oh, I can be a bedroom producer and make something like Phineas did for Billie Eilish from my house and and chase that specific type and genre, and maybe that's more flattening. But there's always going to be little pockets of weirdos who find each other. It's like the hyper-pop stuff that, I don't know, maybe is... Again, I'm probably a little behind the curve. Maybe is already passe to even say that, but you know that's like a a community of producers, very online, who are pushing each other in the same direction of like that hyperactive, glossy flipping of that same Swedish production style of like, oh, let's take that Swedish production style and speed it up two hundred percent and chop it up to hell and reconstruct it in new and usually very gay ways. Uh, and I, yeah, again, mean that in like the a positive descriptive yeah, sense, yeah. uh, to, to create a whole new micro genre of music that now has hyper pop dance nights all over New York and major cities here. That is a genuinely new thing that emerged in the last like four or five years. Yeah. So before we close out, are there any other macro level changes in the music industry that you've observed during your time making and introducing? I mean, this is more of a personal one, but Molly and I basically got into going to music festivals as we started doing the uh, show, um, which uh, has kind of changed how we think about it. And, you know, I think that there's kind of an overcultural thing of music festivals get a kind of bad rap um, as, you know, kind of sites of conspicuous consumption uh, more than they are. Uh, but for Molly and I, they're mostly just a good deal as omnivorous consumers of music to be able to like go to something like Coachella, uh, which we've been to several times and in three days see 50 of the top acts of the moment uh, of all different things from like hardcore dance DJing to, you know, big rock acts to little indie hip hop and R&B things to Danny Elfman or somebody, you know, performing like a pure bang for our buck and just being able to to get a ton of different music. Um, I think that that has been a boon for us, but I think, you know, they've been increasingly become sites of kind of statements of where the music industry is and kind of where various artists' popularity are. I don't know. I might be speaking... Uh, out my ass here more as somebody who now follows these things more closely, but it certainly seems that the rise in prominence of the music festival as, as uh, 
cultural, you know, stake layer of of where things are and who is where in the totem pole of popularity and and music consumption each year has has risen since we started doing the show. Um, other than that, it's mostly just been it's been so nice doing the show and having like actual musicians get in touch with us and say that they enjoy what we do and um, you know we'll we'll actually be going to a, a show in a few weeks. Uh, Friendship Quest, these local promoters who put on these DIY shows that came from uh, a guy cold emailing our show account uh, with the phrase, I'm going to get just top of the email. I'm going to get straight to the point. My name's Sniper and my band Wasp Factory is playing Brooklyn next week and I want you to come. And we're like, I mean, how can we say no to that? (laughs) So we went and saw Wasp Factory who are uh, nice uh, noisy hardcore kids from um, Columbus uh, come through and play a basement of a brownstone uh, out in Bushwick somewhere, uh, and it rocked. And while they were playing that, some like techno goths in like you know neon and like high black platforms were edging through the crowd to get to the back to go to the like again techno goth dance thing that was happening afterwards while these like hardcore kids from Columbus played. You know, in a Bushwick basement in 2022, like it's very heartening to see that that stuff is still happening, at least here in New York and presumably all over the uh, the the place. So that kind of stuff, just being continually reminded that that stuff still exists, and the people and people are gracious enough to invite me and Molly to it, it has been one of the best parts of doing the show. Great. Uh, so, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find? your projects if they want more chris wade uh i my, i'm on twitter at say what again um all chapo trap house stuff can be found at chapo trap house.com uh or basically wherever podcasts uh come out our patreon is patreon.com slash chapo trap house and introducing is available for free every wherever uh podcasts are um and if you want to know more about anything i'm a pretty open book just dm me on on twitter and i'll probably get back to you all right chris thank you thank you for uh for keeping the uh the the radio dream alive over there of course gotta gotta hold that torch yes all right this has been so you have a podcast we will see you next time (laughs) 